James Irvin Robertson used to conduct a regular series of interviews with local characters on Heartland Radio some years ago. St Mary's Chapel Grantley has its yearly service today at 7pm and Henry Stuart Fotheringham talks to James Irvin Robertson about the origins of the chapel. About a mile or so up the hill from the main road that passes Grantley Castle, you arrive at Pitcairn, which is a, a small steading, very similar to all the other steadings and farmhouses on the old estate. And one of the long, thin barn-looking buildings there is not a barn and not part of the steading at all. It is an ancient chapel, and it's, in fact, the parish church of Grantley bef that existed before uh, the one down on the corner of the road nearby there. Um, it probably is a very, very ancient origin, but that is lost in the mists of time. Uh, it is said that there was a cell, which is where St. Adam Nan had housed himself up at Tom Tiyuan, which is only a few hundred yards straight across the hill. Uh, and perhaps there had always been an ecclesiastical settlement of some time from Adam Nan's time onwards. Anyway, by 1533, a little bit pre-Reformation, this church had been re-endowed and set up as the local parish church. And it then fell into disuse again, for some reason I'm not clear about. And in the year 16, well, about 1630, there was a certain uh, well-known and notorious individual in these parts, Sir William Stuart of Grantley, who was known in the family as Sir William the Ruthless, for various mm. very good reasons I won't go into now. Um, Sir William the Ruthless, as well as being ruthless, he... Uh, liked embellishing his buildings, of which he possessed a good number, including Grantley Castle. He added pepperpot turrets and so on. And he also thought it was time he embellished this church and got it going again. This was after the Reformation, of course, so it was Church of Scotland with bishops situation. Wherein, um, he did a wonderful painted ceiling, which he had executed for him in not quite the newest style. It was a sort of Renaissance style that had been going for a little bit, I think, and there are other examples at Falkland Palace and so on, um, in which there are uh, panels with the family coats of arms on the ceiling uh, of his own arms and the arms of his wife, who was um, a Miss... What was she called again? Um, a Mancreef. She was Miss Mancreef from Easter Mancreef. And so you get the, the Stuart of Grantley arms and the Mancreef coat of arms on the ceiling, each of them in a panel, multicoloured. It was probably very bright and brilliant when it was first painted, but it has now faded so much that you can scarcely see some of it. In between are various interesting beasts and birds, some of them fabulous and some of them more or less real. Uh, and then there are the coats of arms of more of his ancestors and the royal coat of arms and the queen's coat of arms and things uh, set in the ceiling and this is all in only one half of the building it's very long and thin when you walk into it and the front half where the altar and the pulpit would have been um, uh, is the bit that is covered with the wooden ceiling and the back half which I believe once had a little gallery at the other end uh, was just left ordinary hammer beams, which have now been restored by what was then the Department for the Environment, I think. Um, and there was originally, in the, until the 19th century, or indeed into this century, it was just a, a plain uh, um, floor of uh, no tiles, no slabs, no anything, just earth. And then at some time, some nice old stones were found and put down as paving. And now it has been concreted over 
by the department. Uh, in all that earth, Henry, was it, was it layered with Stuarts of Grantly? Yes, it was. I believe so. We don't know the precise burial places or precisely who was buried, except for the two last people to be buried actually in the church. Um, the first of them was George William Stuart, who was the son of Sir William Stuart in the 19th century, who brought the buffalo back from America. I think we've spoken about him in the past on this station. Um, and he earned himself a VC at the relief of Lucknow. He was quite a chap. He had a sad end. Would you like to hear about his Why sad not? end? Yes. Um, uh, he had one or two party tricks, one of which included sword swallowing. Now, he was showing off to his friends one night in a pub in Hythe, and he had had one or two already, you see, before he got started on this, and he thought, now it's time for my sword-swallowing trick. And so he got it in all right, there was no problem about that, but he hadn't accounted for the fact that he was short of breath because he had had one or two drinks more than he should have done before he started off, and he suffocated, was unable to get the sword out in time, he suffocated, died, was brought back to Mirthley, where he had a lavish sort of... Uh, ceremony and funeral and everything, and his uh, beer was uh, brought up to St Mary's Church, Grantley, where he was buried. Um, the other one, that was in 1850s or something, uh, 1860, I think, and then the other one is his mother, uh, who was of lowly birth, apparently. Uh, she was, uh, when she died, she was laid to rest beside the VC in the the church. As you go in the door now, there you can see these two sort of out rectangular outlines with great um, iron rings to lift them up with, and that is where those two are buried, but we don't know the, the exact location of all the other stewards. Of course, outside the chapel, uh, there is a very attractive little graveyard. It is in need of some renovation at the moment, like many of the local graveyards in this area, and uh, gradually, we are trying to stand up some of the stones. We did one just the other day, actually, and renovated. If you take a stick and you prod around in the graveyard, you'll find a couple of dozen stones which yeah. are face down and two or three inches below the grass. And it's a matter of finding time and money and patience to dig them up and re-erect them in the proper sites. It's still a functioning chapel, St Mary's, isn't it? Well, yes. Uh, when... Our family handed it over to the care of the what was then the Department for the Environment. It was agreed that there could be an annual service held in the church. It happens on a Sunday evening. I think it's the last Sunday of July every year, simply to keep the continuity going, because in all probability it is the oldest ecclesiastical settlement, the oldest uh, foundation of a church anywhere in this part of Perthshire. Yes, yes. How rare is it in, in terms of its decoration? I think, as like far that. as the painted ceiling is concerned, there's an article which appeared in the Proceedings of the Society of Antiquities of Scotland in 1943, which details, it's principally concerned with St Mary's Chapel, the painted ceiling in the Church of St Mary at Grantley, it says, by a Mr A. Graham. Uh, he points out that there are, I think, nine other similar ceilings, some more spectacular, some not so spectacular, of either this date or a little bit before it. I think this is almost the last of the series. Uh, one of the earliest and finest ones was in the King's Bedchamber at Falkland Palace, that's James V, and so it's slightly pre-Reformation. It was painted in the 1530s, um, almost a century before the one at St Mary's Grantley. 
And so in that hundred years, there are nine or ten of these wonderful painted ceilings which have survived. At Falkland, they've made a bit of a mistake. The National Trust has restored it in faded colours, whereas at Grantley, uh, the faded colours you see are the original ones which have always been there. And it's still, of course, uh, available for people to go and see, isn't it? Oh, yes. Please go up there and look at it. Uh, it is a wonderful place. It has a terrific atmosphere. Donald McAllister was minister of Blackadder Church in North Berwick for many years, and he retired to live in Moulin. Former moderator Derek Browning spoke at Donald's funeral on July the 19th in Pitlochry Church of Scotland, and we hear part of his eulogy now. When World War II came, Donald served as a Bevan boy down the coal mines. It was hard unpleasant and frightening work in a claustrophobic space that he rarely talked about. After the war years, a sense of his higher calling to the ministry developed and grew in a simple but undeniable way. Of that calling, he simply said, it just had to be. Donald took his Bachelor of Divinity degree at New College Edinburgh, where he met and made lifelong friends with Bill Barker, a minister of the Presbyterian Church USA. Donald and Bill, with their wives Marda and Jean, had many adventures over the years, traveling extensively around Scotland. I remember well on one occasion when Bill and I had twinned our congregations in Allentown, Pennsylvania and Cooper, and Bill and I swapped pulpits for several weeks. When I returned to Cooper, the McAllisters and Barkers were still staying in my manse, but I noticed that my car mileage had gone up by over 1,000, nearly 2,000 miles in a week that I had been away. It transpired that the bold Donald with Bill had organized one of their barmark tours to Orkney and decided my car was a better option than theirs. Raising a quizzical eyebrow with the two reverend doctors that afternoon, Donald simply smiled and said, The Lord hath need of it. And laughed with delight when I suggested that the next time they were in town, I would replace my car with a Palm Sunday donkey for their exclusive use. Donald was ordained in 1951, which means he was ordained for just over 71 years. That nearly made him the father of the church. His first parish was Mackintosh Memorial in Fort William, where there are still some who remember his ministry there with great fondness. In 1960, he moved to Blackadder Parish Church in North Berwick. His ministry was marked by precision and authority in preaching. Many of us will remember his watch night services at Blackadder, where the whole of North Berwick seemed to attend, usually for the only time in that year. I don't remember him judging any of us, but do remember the utter sincerity and authenticity of his preaching on those charged occasions. All his preaching was well prepared and thoughtful, and many will have fond memories of his three-part sermons from his evening services. His distinctive pronunciation of Deuteronomy was part of an unevening sermon on the importance of manna, the bread-like substance that sustained the Israelites in their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. 
Even he was only slightly flummoxed after his usual eloquence to be queried by a seven-year-old at the church door. So then, this manna again, what was it? Many of us will remember his wonderfully warm and wide-ranging children's talks, which he gathered for many years. And I know I will not be the only minister and leader of worship grateful to him when they were published and still use them to this day.
Reverend Ian Ramsden is minister at Easter House in Glasgow, and he's got a thought for the week for us about a letter from Jesus. I was at a church meeting recently, and I was a wee bit concerned that um, we were getting far too businesslike. You know, it doesn't sound very PC in this world, but here's something I read, and it just suited me down to the ground. I thought I'd share this with you. It's a letter, supposedly, of course, from Jesus Christ to the Christians. So imagine this letter arrived in your church. Dear Christians, this is my commission to you. In fact, you might even call it a great commission. You are to go to all people everywhere and call them to become my disciples. You are to baptize them and teach them to obey all I have commanded you. Don't forget, but I will be with you always to help you even to the end of the world. I will never leave you nor forsake you because I love you. Please don't forsake me with all my love, Jesus Christ. After much consideration, the reply was sent. They got together, and of course, this is a letter from the committee. Dear Jesus, we acknowledge receipt of your recent communication. Your proposal is both interesting and challenging. However, due to a shortage of personnel, as well as several other financial and personal considerations, we do not feel that we can give proper emphasis to your challenge at this time. A committee has been appointed to study the feasibility of the plan. We should have a report to bring to our congregation sometime in the future. You may rest assured we will give this our considerable, con uh, careful consideration. And our board will be praying for you and your efforts to find additional disciples. We do appreciate your offer to serve as a, per a resource person. And should we decide to undertake this project at some point in the future, we'll get back to you. Cordially, the Christians. You know, Jesus has a love for all people. Many don't know, understand, or even believe that. And he wants us, you and I, to go out and share the good news with everyone. But like the Christians in that letter, we're good at making very convincing excuses why we can't do what Jesus expects of us. So here's a thought for each and every one of us. Let us ask ourselves, what excuses do I make for not sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others? Hmm, now there is a thought, don't you think?
Christine Getty there with Hear the Call of the Kingdom. That's a song written by, or in collaboration with Stuart Townend by Keith and Christine Getty. Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today he looks at the problems Moses faced when trying to lead the people of Israel into the Promised Land. For me it's simple. It all depends on the quality of the one who leads you and the power they wield. God of the universe, the one who parted the Red Sea to allow us to pass, and then made the waves to crash over our pursuers. This is the one who is our leader and power source. How could we doubt his word after seeing that? He'd promised us a homeland. Now we were at the moment of taking this land, and I knew he wouldn't fail us. I knew! But did the other Israelites? Well, that's the question. We'd been in the deserts now for some months when the command of the Lord came to me, Moses, that it was time to prepare to enter the land of Canaan that he'd promised us when we went out from the land of Egypt. We're to take one man from each of the twelve tribes and send them to spy out the land. Of those twelve, I personally esteemed Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, but I wasn't so sure of the other ten. I gave them five questions to be answered when they went out. One, to see what the land is like, as in, are the people strong or weak? Next, how are the cities in which they live? Are they fortified or just encampments? Then, is the land good for growing things and maintaining flocks for our animals? And are there many trees in it? Lastly, they were to bring a sample of the fruit of the land. 
Great was my surprise when ten of the spies returned with this report. Uh, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Well, the fruit were clusters of grapes, figs, and pomegranates suspended between two poles and carried by two men. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And these were the giants of old. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. At that point, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Although Joshua was of the same persuasion as Caleb, the reply from the other ten spies was immediate. We're not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave a bad report of the land to the sons of Israel, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all oh, the people who we saw there are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Oh, unfortunately, the people were swayed by the report of these ten fearful spies and refused to listen to Caleb and Joshua. They were crying out as they had so many times before, saying, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? Aha, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Well, the Lord's anger was palpable this time. Other times there were challenges during the journey, but now we were supposed to enter the land. Did the Israelites just think they'd dance into lands that were occupied for centuries by other races? Did they think they'd just lay down their arms and leave with a thank you very much? Well, God even offered to make a new nation of me and my descendants and forsake the Israelites. And I, I will admit, I found the offer tempting, but reasoned with God. Aha, now, stop right there. God allowed me, a mere mortal, to reason with him. That in itself shows something of his superb nature. I argued that if he were to forsake the Israelites, the nations surrounding us would have cause to blaspheme his name. They would say that God rescued them out of the land of Egypt, but was unable to get them to the land he promised them. Well, God relented but with one proviso. Jacob, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, would be the only ones who would be permitted to enter the promised land. God, I wonder where I fitted in with all this. But it would be useless for the present generation to pursue any conquest. So what was the first thing the Israelites did? Yes, they tried to attack the Canaanites and Amalekites in the hill country, and what result do you think they got? Well, they were soundly beaten. Now, for me, it's simple. If the Lord told us to prepare to take the land, that should stop all disputes, because it all depends on the quality of the one who leads you and the power they wield. And at the end of the day, there is no one or no nation that can stand against him. This comes from the Holy Bible in the book of Numbers. 
chapters 13 and 14. Take the things I once called treasures Take my castles in the sand Take my shallow store of knowledge And the future I once planned Sweet.